This morning we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. I don't know if you have ever heard a, song, a sermon on singing. Why we sing? What do we sing? There's a first time for everything. You haven't heard that sermon yet. And uh, I hope to not just share thoughts that I have, but I hope to share with you what the Word of God has to say. So we're going to camp out primarily um, in Colossians 3, verse 16, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 to give us context. Okay, so I have it on the screen if you don't have it, but in chapter 3, verse 1 of Colossians, Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, <clears throat> but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, this is the word of the Lord. I know that we just prayed, but let's pray again. Um, Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks. We give you thanks for this morning that you have given us, a morning that we don't deserve. Lord, a time to be together and to worship you. God, to stand in your presence with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to sing to you, to pray. God, we thank you that you hear our prayers. God, I thank you for this word that you have given us. God, we don't have to ask you to speak. Lord, when we open your word, you are speaking to us. Lord, we only ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit now to help us to understand. God, give us understanding. Would you please come and teach us? God, would you come and fix our eyes on Christ to seek the things above? Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So here as we look at the book of Colossians, chapter 3, if you're not familiar with the book of Colossians, it's a, book, it's a book that Paul is writing from prison to a church in Colossae, a church that he didn't plant himself. He doesn't know these people, uh, but he has heard of their faith, and he has also heard of how there has been false teaching that has crept into the church there. 
false teaching that is confusing the church's understanding of who Christ is and what he has done for us. We don't exactly know what the false teaching was, but by Paul's writing, we can kind of tell what it was a little bit. Maybe not, we can't pinpoint exactly. But in this book, Paul, he writes to give us a very high view of who Christ is. As Christians, we don't worship Christ just because he is a really good man, a great religious leader. No, we worship him because Jesus Christ is God. In chapter 1, it says that all things were created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he holds all things together. That is who Christ is. Christ is God, right? So he gives us this very high view of Christ because probably what the false teaching was is that they kind of devalued who Christ was. They also, or Paul, he also gives us this understanding of what Christ has done for us. That he, has recon- that he has come to reconcile all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. In verse 13 of chapter 1, it says that um, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the king of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. That's in Christ we can experience that. And then as we just read in chapter 3, Paul is addressing now the reality for us as believers, those of us who have been transferred into the kingdom of light, we, our lives are now hidden in Christ. We are to put on Christ. That's our reality. Our life is found in Christ. And Paul is telling us, if now you're in Christ, seek the things that are above. No longer seek the things of this world. You've been given a new nature. It doesn't make sense to submit again to your old sinful nature where you're pursuing worldly desires, sinful desires. This is why Paul tells us to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Because while we have been made right with God, we've been given this new nature in Christ, we still also still dwell in the flesh where we still have sinful desires. And so Paul urges us, put to death what is earthly in you and to put on Christ, who is your life. So Paul is telling us to pursue Christ's likeness, to pursue Christ. Which pursuing Christ's likeness is the pursuit of holiness, and Christ himself is the perfect embodiment of holiness. So the pursuit of Christ's likeness and the pursuit of holiness go hand in hand. And in verse 16, we see that in order to grow in Christ's likeness, to be Christ-like, both as individuals and as a community, The word of Christ must dwell in us, and it must dwell in us richly, which will be evident as we sing and as we teach one another. As we look at verse 16, notice the very first word that Paul gives us. He says, let, right? So this is an imperative. I mean, it's everything that follows this word is a command for us. This isn't an option, right? Everything in this thought is a command. Paul is about to command us to do something. And he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. What is the word of Christ? The word of Christ is the teaching of Christ and also teaching about Christ, which is what Paul has just done in Colossians. He's told us who Christ is, given us this very high understanding of who Christ is, right? That he is God. Teaching, when we look at what the teaching of Christ is to 
believe it also refers to all of Scripture because Christ himself says this. In John 5, 39, Jesus Christ rebukes the Pharisees because they knew the Old Testament, but they did not recognize Christ when he came. Right? Jesus says that all the Old Testament bears witness to me. All of the Old Testament is about Christ. When we look at the New Testament, it's explicit that all of it is about Christ. It all points to Christ to help us to understand who he is, what he has done for us. In 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul writes that the word of Christ, it makes us wise to salvation. Okay, So it reveals Christ to us it reveals what we need to know in order to be saved, right? Who Christ is and what he has done for us. In John 17, 17, Jesus, when he's praying, he says, Father, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. So not only does the word of Christ have the power to save us, it has the power to sanctify us, right? We have been made right with God. We've been made holy. That is our standing before God, and the whole process of sanctification is becoming more and more holy, more and more Christ-like. If we want to pursue Christ-likeness and sanctification, we cannot do so apart from the word of God because it is the word of God that has the power to sanctify us. Okay? And so next, Paul tells us to let the word dwell in you, but to dwell in you richly. That word dwell is the same the same Greek word that we get the word dwell there is the same word that we get abide in John 15, 4, where Jesus tells us to abide in me and I in you. Because apart from him, we can do nothing, right? So as we are to have the word of God abide in us, it is to remain in us, to dwell in us. It is not to depart from us, but to stay and to impact our lives and to sanctify us, every aspect of our lives. This is an imperative for all Christians, not just the super-Christians or the leaders or the teachers. Paul is writing to all Christians, all the, all the Christians in Colossae and now to us. During the time leading up to the Reformation, which was 500 years ago, that was 1517, so 501 years ago, leading up to this point, there were several corruptions in the Roman Catholic Church at the time. One being that the priests did not give the people in their churches the word of God. Not only did they not preach the word of God in a language that the people could understand, but there weren't copies available for the people to have so that they could read the Bible for themselves. Then God and his, and also too, the priests themselves, I, read a, I was reading a biography earlier, some of the priests didn't even have the word of God. So some of the leaders didn't even have Bibles for themselves, so they didn't even know it. But anyway, then God in his sovereignty and goodness used the Protestant Reformation. He used the work of Martin Luther to kind of spark this Reformation. Um, Martin Luther translated the Bible into the German language for the people so they could have it. God used the advent of the printing press to help get the word out. But God, but God had the word go forth to where people could have the Bible for themselves again. We forget as Christians um, in America, in the Bible Belt, with all this religious freedom, we, for, we, we take for granted um, all of the opportunities that we have, how accessible the word of the living God is to us. We're at a time in history in which we have the greatest access to Scripture than any time period before us. Most of us have multiple copies of the Bible. And then with the internet now, if we have our if we have smartphone, Within seconds, we can access any translation of scripture we want, pretty much. 
along with multiple really solid commentaries online. You can just Google those and find them. There's all kinds of great Bible teaching online. It's evident that the Word of God dwells all around us, but does it dwell in us? Does it dwell in our hearts and in our minds? Recent studies have shown that while our access to scripture and commentaries and other resources are at an all-time high, our biblical literacy, our understanding of scripture and what's really going on is really struggling. Most people don't really know what's taking place, maybe especially in the Old Testament, but what's, what's going on in the Bible, okay? Are you taking advantage of all the religious freedom and resources, all the opportunities to, to dig deep into God's word yourself, Paul tells us not only to let it dwell in us some by knowing it, and it's not just knowing things in which that ha- causes the word to dwell in us, but it's also trusting in what God's word says. Because there are a lot of people who know a lot about the Bible, but the word doesn't dwell in them in a way that is saving and sanctifying, right? But God's, he wants, God wants his word to dwell in us and to dwell in us richly. There is a difference between the word of God dwelling in you a little bit and then dwelling in you richly. Just like there's a difference in a regular chocolate chip cookie and a double chocolate chip cookie, both of which I love. Um, yeah, man, I can't say that enough. The regular, the regular chocolate chip cookie has some chocolate chips in it, maybe even a lot of chocolate chips, but the whole cookie itself is not chocolate. The double chocolate chip cookie, however, has chocolate chips and even chocolate in the cookie batter. And y'all know where I'm going with this. I'm sure. Oftentimes, we can try to compartmentalize our lives, allowing Christ to impact some areas of our lives. Maybe we think that the Bible doesn't apply to some areas of our lives, and so we just don't seek God's word for it. And there are also other areas of our lives that are unaffected by God's word because we we refuse to submit to God's word, right? God's word... God's desire, and his word makes it clear to us, that God does not just desire his word to dwell in some parts of us, but to dwell in us richly, affecting every aspect of our lives, to saturate all that we do, to inform and to change us, right? Paul tells us one of the ways that we are to have the word of Christ dwelling in us is by teaching and admonishing or warning one another, This is an adverbial participle. It modifies the previous action and command. It answers the question, how? How are we to let the word of Christ dwell in us? Well, through teaching and admonishing one another. And it is by God's design that we pursue Christ's likeness in community. We were never meant to pursue Christ's likeness on our own. In fact, we can't do that. God gave us each other to help and to teach one another. And yes, God gives all Christians spiritual gifts, gifts that he, his Holy Spirit gives us for the sake of edifying the church, building up the church. Um, so he, he gives some people, pastors and other teachers, the gift of teaching. But God also gives all, all Christians the general command to teach one another, which is what we see here, okay? We are to, each of us, we all have this command to teach and encourage one another with the word of Christ, This demands that we are present in each other's lives if we are to teach. Teaching one another the word of Christ also requires that we know the word of Christ. We can't teach what we don't know. And as we sang earlier, 
We are prone to leave the God that we love. We are prone to fall into sin. Right? Any teacher, I'm sure, um, knows this well, that a big aspect of teaching is reminding students. You have to remind your students over and over and over again. Because um, sometimes there's truth in our minds, but it's not, it's not, we don't always re- quickly recall it or it does not always affect the way that we live. Right? One of the important aspects of teaching, how we are to t- teach one another, is just through reminding each other, reminding each other of who Christ is and what he has done for us. We see Paul doing this often, reminding Christians what it looks like to follow Christ, to follow Christ faithfully and to pursue holiness, okay? Remember Paul earlier He says that he wrote the book of Colossians so that they would not be taken captive by worldly philosophies or human traditions. We are to be led by Christ and to have his wisdom dwell in us. That is what we are supposed to teach and encourage one another. When we come to church, which Hebrews 10.25 says that we should not neglect meeting to one another, we are to continue to meet with one another all the more as we see the day drawing near, okay? But we are to pursue the wisdom of Christ. Where does the wisdom of Christ come from? It comes from his word, right? So easily does worldly philosophy, teaching, worldly wisdom creep into our lives and the way that we function and operate, the things that we value. But instead, we need to be reminded continually by each other what the word of Christ says, what we are to value, to bring us back to Christ, to, be, to have our minds, our eyes fixed on him, his word. His word, his wisdom is the wisdom that has the power to save us, the power to change us, okay? When we come to church on Sundays to hear the word of God, we, we don't come just to hear good ideas, right? We, we come to hear the word of God proclaimed, We come to hear the word of Christ. We come to see God made known, Christ revealed to us. We come to see him in all of his glory. And so, while the word is supposed to dwell in us richly, which is accomplished by an evidence in our teaching of one another, right? while this can sound intimidating, I know for some people, hearing this command, that can be intimidating, knowing that that you have this call in your life to teach one another. I believe that one of the ways we are to fulfill this command of teaching one another is actually through singing. So let's, so let's talk about singing for the rest of our time, okay? Singing is a very cultural thing, right? All singing is culturally situated. Um, all cultures sing. All people sing. Even if you're not a singer, I'm sure you still sing in the shower or you sing in your car when your favorite song comes on, you know? We, we all sing. Um, we all, a lot of people, you know, love to go to concerts because they, they love their favorite bands, whether it's Craig Cooper and Metallica or The Webs and Brad Paisley, you know, whatever. Like, we all have different styles of music that we love, right? We all, we all sing what we love. We sing for different reasons. We sing in honor of our country at ball games. We sing for the love of our schools. I remember the very first time, I was 12 years old when I went to a Texas A&M football game. It was, a, it was a religious experience for sure. Um, I was 12 years old and I had my best friend 
I think he was like a third or fourth generation Aggie, so he had definitely been indoctrinated. And he invited us one Saturday morning um, to, to go see an Aggie football game. And I remember sitting on the 50-yard line. He did not give me the memo that I was supposed to wear a maroon shirt. I wore this bright lime green shirt. It was awesome. Stuck out like a sore thumb. And I remember at one point in the game when, it was before the game, I don't know, but like when everybody put their arms around each other and began singing the Aggie War Hymn. They began to sing for their love of their school, their love for their community, and their hatred for Texas University. It's this, it's this song that unites them. It's a pretty powerful experience, even if you're not an Aggie. I never ended up being an Aggie. I married an Aggie, but you know. Uh, but it was an awesome, awesome experience, okay? But music does have this ability to unite people, right? People sing about what unites them. As Christians, we sing about what unites us as believers. We sing about Christ and our faith in Christ. That's a cultural thing. We all sing about what unites us. We sing about our mutual loves. Our singing as Christians is also vertical. Like much cultural singing, our singing has an object. We're singing to some, someone or to something oftentimes. As Christians, we sing first and foremost to God, and we see this in Colossians 3 at the end where Paul tells us to sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This goes back to letting the word of Christ dwell in us. If it's just in our minds and not in our hearts, then how can we sing with thankfulness in, in our hearts to God? Right? Thankful hearts are those who have not only heard the word of Christ, but have responded to it in repentance and faith and trust in Christ. Come to see him for who Christ is and they have turned to him in faith. Christ is the object of our singing. God is the object of our singing. We're supposed to sing to him in worship. In Psalm 29 two, the psalmist writes to ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name. Worship the Lord in splendor, in the splendor of holiness. There are all types of situations in which we're to sing to God. Our singing as Christians, as we sing to God vertically, as it's a cultural thing, as all people sing. As Christians, though, getting a little more specific, our, our singing is countercultural, okay? As Christians, yeah, we, we sing to God in obedience to God. Where else do people of all ages and from all backgrounds come together to sing in obedience? Maybe communist countries, I don't know. But I would imagine in America right now, we, there's, there aren't places where we're commanded to, to sing, right? We don't have to, but God's word makes it clear. You, you gotta sing, okay? Where else do people of all ages and backgrounds come together to learn new songs? Most churches don't operate with a hymnal anymore. So as new songs are being written, we're constantly learning new songs. And that's a really cool thing, to be able to sing both old songs and new songs. Right? But we're learning new songs. Where else does that take place? That's kind of countercultural. Unlike other cultural singing, as Christians, we don't just sing because we like to sing. We don't just sing because we like a certain melody. We sing because of the content of our songs. We sing about the greatness of our God, the God who's worthy to be sung to. This type of countercultural singing is an expression of our unity with one another. It's not just our love for the music on Sunday mornings that unites us, and it shouldn't. 
but, the, but what unites us is the object and the content of our singing, which is Christ, the one who has saved us. So while our singing is countercultural, our singing is also horizontal. Okay? Singing is actually one of the ways we teach and admonish one another. Paul gives us another adverbial participle. How are we to teach and admonish one another? Through singing. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And it's really practical, isn't it? Um, we use music to teach little kids information. The ABCs, Old MacDonald, teaching them, you know, the farm animals, all kinds of things, right? It's super practical to use music to teach people. And each worship song, if it's a good worship song, it is a sermon in itself. We often remember songs far longer than sermons. It's possible that for all of us, there might be sermons that have really um, stuck out to us, have been really impactful in our lives, but oftentimes it's a worship song that will go with us throughout our day that we can have in our mind reminding us of who God is, what he's, what he's like, what his love for us is like, what he has done for us. So when we, as Christians, gather together, we actually gather to sing not only to God, but to one another in order to teach and encourage each other. We sing these many sermons and song to one another. If this horizontal aspect in corporate worship seems like a stretch, because I know that kind of does seem a little weird at first, look, look at Ephesians 5.19. This is a very parallel passage where Paul tells us to not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The command there is a little bit more explicit, right? That we are to sing to one another. Okay? In Ephesians, it talks about how when the Holy Spirit fills us, we are to sing. In Colossians, it says the word of Christ fills us that we are to sing. It's like these things go hand in hand here. But we are to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Real quick, what are psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? And all the songs that we sing, they are to contain the word of Christ. But here, when, when, when Paul talks about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, I don't think he's giving us three tight categories of songs. We all know what the psalms are, you know. Um, kind of in our language today, hymns refer to those old songs like Jesus paid it all, come thou fount, and maybe we can thank spiritual songs, ah, maybe Phil Wickham, you know, some hill song. I don't really think that's what Paul's doing here because, you know, in 50 years, songs by Phil Wickham like Living Hope, that could probably be referred to as a hymn be referred to a hymn now, right? Um, most Bible scholars believe that Paul is not telling us that there are three types of, so of songs to sing, but that, he's sing that but he is telling us that we can sing both songs that were from Scripture, like the Psalms, and then other songs that are continuing to be written, songs that contain the word of Christ and biblical truth, okay? And we see songs like this in Colossians, there are, there are different passages in the New Testament in Paul's writings that biblical scholars believe those are hymns that the early church sang. Then there were, of course, other songs that they were continuing to write and to sing. When Paul does talk about spiritual songs, I think that term can refer to both hymns and psalms. In John, Jesus tells us that we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. Part of that means we don't just worship God externally. We don't worship God, lift up our songs while our hearts are far from God. But no, we're to worship God with our hearts engaged. We're to worship God with our being, in spirit, 
and in truth. Okay? And in all of these songs, it, help us, it helps us to understand um, our type of singing when we re- go back to the imme- original command, which is to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. The songs we sing need to not only be faithful to Scripture, but to contain the message of Christ. Does this mean that every um, song that we sing needs to be about Christ and the cross? Not necessarily. We, we need songs that help us understand God's holiness and righteousness because understanding those things helps us to understand what the cross means, helps us to understand who Christ is and why he had to come to save us. We need all types of songs that help us understand how big and how great our God is, to help us understand all of his character, right? When we look at the Psalms, which we were commanded to sing, we see, we see songs of celebration and praise. We see songs of repentance. We see songs of lament, songs for every season of life, and we need them all. all right? God himself provides us with songs of response to seeing in every season, and so we should. We need to sing songs that help us to understand who God is and who Christ, who Christ is. Because you and I are finite, we will never be able to run out of things to sing about. God is infinite. We are finite. We can never exhaust the amount we can sing about God. Perhaps this is why in the Psalms it tells us to sing a new song. Because as we continue to sing new songs, we, we, we sing new songs as the word of Christ continues to teach and to inform us. We can never run out of things to learn from God's word. We can never run out of songs of response to continue to sing to God. And if the songs that we sing are to be evidence of the word of Christ dwelling in us, and if they are to be able to teach, they don't need to be vague songs. They don't need to be songs that could also possibly be about a boyfriend or girlfriend. There's a lot of those out there. It's like, who who are they singing to? Perhaps those songs have their place if they're contextually situated, but if these songs are supposed to be able to teach us, they need to be explicitly Christian. Songs where people can't hear them and be confused about who we're singing to. We're singing about the God of the Bible. We're singing about Christ, the one who took on flesh, became human to dwell among us, to live in our place, to die in our place, and to rise again, the one who is alive today. For this reason, it's helpful that the songs that we sing, that they be rich in biblical and gospel content. Not just a little Christian, but songs that contain a deep understanding of who Christ is and what he has done for us. I know that saying these things might scare some people. It's like, okay, are we supposed to just sing really, really wordy songs? Not necessarily. But also, too, when we sing deep songs, remember, we're not supposed to sing songs void of emotions, void of thankfulness. As we sing these songs about deep truths of who God is, what he has done for us, these serve to inform our emotions. Worship should be a deeply emotional experience but we shouldn't just come to seek an emotional experience. That's idolatry. We don't just worship our emotion or the experience. We come to seek Christ, to see his glory. When we, when we come to seek and worship an emotional experience, we come to commit idolatry. 
But when we come to experience Christ and to worship Christ, we experience both Christ and deep emotion because Christ offers us true joy and true delight and a peace that transcends all understanding. Because of this type of singing, because it does have this horizontal teaching effect or aspect to it, it's supposed to be edifying. It's supposed to be horizontal as we sing to one another. We should value congregational singing, not just good music performed by talented musicians. If we go back to the Reformation again, I don't want to bore you, but if we go back to the Reformation again, during this time of corruption in the church, there wasn't congregational singing. All, all the music and singing that was being done was being done by choirs up front. The people in the, in the service weren't singing. One of Martin Luther's passions and convictions was to see the congregation singing again. And that was one positive result of the Reformation, that people began singing the word of Christ again. But if you go into some churches today, you might see a, fam- a familiar phenomenon, a concert taking place on stage with only a few people singing, some others maybe mumbling along, still others just standing there, but they're there to, but they're there to um, spectate, to be spectators, just to see what's taking place and see the professional worshipers on stage. As Christians, we are all the choir. That does not mean that worship bands and leaders don't serve their purpose. They do have a purpose, and it's helpful to, to help lead us in song and in music. It's helpful at times to have choirs. Some churches have choirs, but we must not lose sight of the fact that the New Testament never tells us about the role of worship leader. The New Testament never tells us about worship bands or choirs. It tells us that all Christians are to sing to God and to one another. We are all the choir, which means that the songs that we sing should be singable, songs that people can sing. This is not a sermon on musical style. I don't want tomatoes thrown at me, Um, right? I don't think that scripture addresses what style of music to sing. I don't. But I think that there is wisdom that scripture gives us that the songs that we sing should be songs that all people, all people can sing, both young, young Christians and old Christians, right? Christians in every part, every Um, life stage, songs that we can all sing together. Because all of us are different. We all come from different backgrounds. All of us at times will have to set aside our preferences in pursuit of what is most helpful and edifying for the church. Philippians 2.4, Paul tells us to not not to seek our own interests, but also the interests of others. No two people have the same musical interests. I met my wife at a, at a concert. We bonded very quickly over music. We thought, man, like, we are two peas in a pod. We love all the same music. And we found out relatively quickly that we don't enjoy all the same music. And there are even times today when I will hear a, a worship song that just came out that I just love and adore, and I get so pumped to sing it, and then I'll show it to her. I'll ask her to, to lead us in it one Sunday morning. And she's like, eh, it's okay. <laughs> right? If, if everybody chose a church based upon their musical preferences, a church where they would never have to sing a song that they didn't care for, we'd have a lot of really, 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 really tiny churches. A song that we may not like, maybe, what, maybe the song the person beside us or in front of us needs to hear, so we should sing. Someone beside you may need to be reminded of God's holiness and righteousness. 
Someone beside you may have come to church this morning overwhelmed by the weight of their sin. Come, they might have come feeling so convicted and unlovable. Yet we sing a song of God's mercy that he welcomes the vilest and the poor, that his sin, that our sins, there are many, his mercy for us is more. Maybe they need to be reminded of their living hope. Remember, singing at church, it is also for the edification of the church. We see this in, our, in the horizontal nature of our singing. And don't think that this isn't an act of worship. We're to do all things for the glory of God. So even though we're, um, this, I mean, remember too, our singing first and foremost is to God, but just because there has, there's this horizontal aspect to our singing does not mean that that is less worship, okay? It is by God's design um, that we worship in this way. It is by God's des- design that we find encouragement in seeing others around us praising God. People praising God in seasons of blessing. People worshiping God, declaring his goodness and his faithfulness in times of great suffering. That's powerful to see somebody singing in times of great suffering. We need each other to sing, and others need us to sing. When we sing together, we are ministering to each other and also to ourselves. For this reason, we shouldn't just not sing a song because we don't like it. We should, we should judge a song based upon its truthfulness and its alignment with the word of Christ. Someone may need to hear that message. When we refrain from singing for reasons such as this too, we're also hindering unity and withholding teaching and encouragement from one another. When we come, when we come to church, we come as a family, as the children of God, as brothers and sisters, those who ought to care for each other, to bear each other's burdens. Come to love and to encourage each other. Earlier in this passage, Paul tells us that in Christ there is no Jew or Greek. We are to come as one people to worship our God and to encourage each other. When we come together for worship, we are to, that is supposed to be a demonstration of the unity that we have with one another. And it's also supposed to be deeply edifying for us as we as we hear the word of God proclaimed in our songs. It's one of the ways that we evangelize. You know, we don't know who God can bring through our doors on any given Sunday. If, some, if um, God chooses to bring in a non-believer into our church, someone who has never heard the gospel, they come in, what do you think is more powerful? A church that sings songs kind of mumbling along or kind of disinterested? Or if they come in and they see people who are truly believing in what they are singing. When I was at um, that A&M game, you know, everybody had their arms around each other and everybody was singing out with passion and conviction. There was nobody who just sat there with their arms or stood there with their arms folded and claimed that they, they just weren't given the gift of singing. No, everybody was singing with passion, conviction. They were singing about what unites them. As Christians, we should come and we should sing. We should sing to God out of thankful hearts and we should sing to each other to encourage and to teach each other, to teach ourselves. 
What a, what a great example of unity in a world that is so divided right now. The local church is a place where people from all backgrounds, all political affiliations, we can come together and we can sing about what unites us. And that's Christ. As we close, when we sing in this manner to God and to one another, songs that are filled with the message of Christ, we get to experience a foretaste of eternity with Christ. When there will be people from every tribe, every language and people and nation gathered around his throne singing praises in unison to God, singing worthy is the lamb who was slain. Even in eternity, we're singing about what Christ did for us and shedding his blood for us. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. We're never going to stop singing that. So my encouragement and challenge this morning is that we would participate in that type of singing now when we gather on Sunday mornings. That we do, that we do value singing. That we understand that this is a command of God, but a joyful command of God. That it's for our good. We should come prepared on Sunday mornings to sing. Show up before the service begins so that you don't miss anything. Don't distract anyone. Sing in such a way that people around you know that you believe in what you are singing. There is no doubt this person believes what they're singing. Even when we don't sing, sorry, when we don't feel like singing, um, we still sing to God in faith and in obedience to him. God can and does use this to encourage and to edify each other, even ourselves. We are not to take singing lightly. It's a, it's a joyful command that God has given us. It's one of my favorites. It's not only one way that we worship our God, but a way in which we minister to each other. It's both our proper response to having the word of Christ dwell in us and one of the means God has ordained to have the word of Christ dwell in us. Not just as individuals, but also as a community, the bride of Christ. We don't just come as individual brides, but we are one bride. Our singing should represent, or should, be ev- should evidence that unity that we have with each other. So may it be true of us that the word of Christ dwells in us richly here at Redeemer Church.